You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Let's just review briefly to see um, how much of this is sticking with us. In regards to what God creates and the order that God creates, what does God create very first on day one? God creates light. Okay, so God creates light. He, uh, he speaks light into existence. We talked about the significance of light. What, is, what does God create on day two? God creates the atmosphere. He, he creates breathable space for life. So he begins to construct and separate his canvas in such a way that it will, it will be conducive for life. What about on day three, what does God create? Day one's light, day two is the atmosphere, day three is dry land. Okay, God continues to take the formless and void uh, earth that he creates on day one and, and um, structures it in such a way that we have dry land. And then day four, he creates the, the specific celestial body. So he, he takes light that's already in existence and, and gives more uh, structure to it by creating the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies uh, that we observe. And then day five and six, we looked at last week, day five, he creates the, uh, the sea creatures and the sky creatures. Um, on day six, he creates the, the dry land animals, the, the creeping things, the wild beasts. Uh, and in the midst of that, specially uh, singles out the creation of man and woman. We said that in the way that God structures and creates on day six, specifically with man, that he creates man differently than these other animals. Um, God creates differently. He, he gives us uh, a different essence in the sense that we're self-conscious. We have the capacity to, to know and, and interact with God, to know and interact with each other, that there's greater value placed on human beings throughout Scripture, that the taking of a human life is far more egregious than the taking of an animal life. Um, we're separated in purpose. Man has been set up as God's vice regent. God has set man up as his, um, his representative here on earth to, to rule and reign over all of creation. We said that's directly tied with the image of God and what it means to be made in the image of God, that we're, we're very similar. We resemble God in our attributes. There's there's uh, glimpses of God in all of us in the way that we value things and um, the way that we're called to uh, demonstrate some of his attributes like love and mercy and grace and justice. Uh, those are things that are obviously most true and perfect in God's essence, but we, we see those attributes lived out in our communities, um, which leads to the second point of how we're, we're in the image of God. We're created for relationship. We're created for a relationship both with him and with each other. Um, and then lastly, the responsibility that's given to man to rule over God's earth. We saw specifically we're called to multiply and fill this earth. We said that that's not just tied to married couples, that we're called to reproduce ourselves spiritually and to fill this earth with God's image, with God's glory. And so there's, there's implications there for singles and married couples. We're called to subdue this earth. We're called to use the earth's resources for the good of mankind. He said specifically that that looks like us using God's resources to get the gospel out in today's day and age far uh, greater than we've ever had with the technology and the resources that we have available. We can communicate the gospel to the ends of the earth from right here, right? That like that that has been made available through um, what Michelle Stapleton's posted for us on the city, where we can be involved in in uh, 
teaching individuals the English language and allowing them to interact so that there's, there's ways for them to communicate the gospel overseas as there's translation type things happening um, overseas. And so there are, there are so many opportunities afforded to us today as we subdue the earth more and more. And then we talked about the aspect of ruling this earth. And unfortunately, the tragedy of Genesis 3 is that we have failed to image God properly. And that has caused us to surrender our rule to Satan, who shows his rule through sin and death. So while man was created to rule this earth, we have given a lot of that over to Satan. And and sin and death rule this earth now. And so God has graciously sent Christ to capture everything back. Christ comes as the perfect man, the perfect image of God, the the perfect ruler and subduer of this earth. And, And we wait anxiously for that work to be completed when Jesus comes back one day. We turn our attention now to Genesis chapter 2. Normally we would have an application Sunday when we finish a chapter, but the way this flows, uh, Genesis chapter 1 really should have continued going into chapter 2. And so, um, and, and just understanding the creative week, so obviously the chapters and the verses are not uh, inspired. They're not how God would have ordained this and laid it out. And so, uh, taking a little bit of liberty here, we're going to allow chapter 2. Um, to continue our discussion for chapter 1, and then we'll have an application Sunday coming up here probably in two weeks. In Genesis uh, chapter 1, let's look at verse um, 31, and that will lead us into chapter 2. It says, uh, after God had created all the beasts of the earth and man and, and, and woman and given them instructions, it says in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So not just good, You know, each day everything's good, but as God completes everything, now everything is working as it should. Everything has its pieces, so it's not just an atmosphere. It's now got life within that atmosphere. And so God surveys his entire creative work and says that it's very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, as I'm initially studying this and initially reading through, what you find here is a lot of repetition, right? I mean, mean, it seems like... God, through the, the, the hand of Moses, is just saying the same thing over and over and over again. So let's, let's jot down some key words that we find here in, in chapter one verses, or chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. What are some of the key words that seem to get repeated over and over in this section that, that should probably jump out to us? Because any time repetition is used, it's for emphasis, it's for importance. Finished. What else? Rested. Done. Finished, rested, and done are used over and over and over again um, in this section. And so there's a point of emphasis there for us um, that, that God has finished. He has done things. He has accomplished things, which now leads to his ability to rest, his ability to stop doing things and to to call it done, to call it finished. And what we find is that he blesses this day. 
uh, he's able to bless this day and consecrate this day and make it a different kind of day. And we're going to see the implications for us in the midst of looking at these verses today. Uh, Roman numeral one in your notes there, God's pattern of rest. God's pattern of rest. What we see here in this section is that God made specific plans to accomplish his work in six days. God made specific plans to accomplish his work in six days. As God sets out with this creation week, we talked about the the grand design behind it, right? Like God doesn't just start shooting from the hip and making stuff up as he goes. Like we've talked about that really the, the redemptive story starts in time past before God ever started to create. That there were plans that, that the Trinity had in place that, that flows from creation. So there were things that were happening even before God begins to create. So there's, there's much planning and thought and wisdom behind God's creation. But what we see here is that God very specifically structures his week to where he finishes in six days. He accomplishes what he's supposed to in six days. There's thought and planning that allows God to finish. Underneath that, uh, first of all, his work was accomplished and deemed very good. His work was accomplished and deemed very good. That's important for us. There's, there's no flaws or omissions here, right? So, so God has already created Eve at this point. So when we see God create Eve in chapter 2, she's already created in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is a, a, a repeat of some of the events of chapter 1 in more detail. So we get the foundations of marriage. We get the foundations of, of biblical manhood and womanhood and how God ordains that in chapter 2. Chapter 1, and really the first part here of chapter 2... Is, is uh, The intent there is to lay it out chronologically. This is how the events happened. God created man and woman on day six, and then God rested on day seven. But prior to resting, there was a very good verdict given about God's work. He looks at it and says that it's very good. There's no flaws. There's no omissions. There, there's nothing that needs to be added to what I've done. Secondly, his work was complete. His work was complete. It was lacking nothing. It pleased God. So God makes specific plans to accomplish his work in six days. By planning, God was able to finish. It was deemed very good. It was complete. It lacked nothing. The implication from this, God's planned, finished creation, God's planned, finished creation, Creation included provision for man's sin. God's planned, finished creation included provision for man's sin. That's important. God planned for evil. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the existence of evil attributed to God's creative power. God doesn't create evil. He's not responsible for evil. He is sovereign over evil, though. He rules and reigns over evil. Evil is subjected to God's authority, and yet God is not the originator of evil. He's not the source of evil. But in God's creation, his very good creation, he accounts for and plans for the existence of evil. So so it's not that God creates this very good, very awesome, very spectacular creation, 
And then in one day, Satan comes in and wrecks the entire thing, right? Um, for those of you that are um, those of you that are Star Wars lovers, you know in, in the Star Wars trilogy, the the evil empire spends all this time building this grand space station, the Death Star, that's supposed to be the ultimate evil weapon, right? You can see the intricacy and in the design of this thing, and yet in the midst of it, they design it to where a couple of uh, torpedoes blows the whole thing up, right? Like, you don't have to just wail on it over and over. You just send a ship into the middle of it and shoot two shots and the whole thing explodes, right? All that work goes to nothing in the matter of a couple of seconds. That's not God's creation, right? God has not created this grand design that Satan can come in and in the matter of a conversation with Eve, wreck the entire thing. What happens is, is that when Satan comes in to try to wreck the entire thing, what it does is it sets off God's redemptive plan, the plan that ultimately wrecks Satan and all of evil, right? It puts into motion the fact that mankind is not God and that mankind needs the ultimate God-man to come to rescue all of creation. And so the whole plan backfires. And we talked about the, the, um, the plan there in, in 2 Thessalonians where uh, the, the Antichrist and Satan think that they're winning the battle, and yet ultimately it ends up being Jesus' greatest victory. And that's what we see in God's creation. It's very good. It's very good to the point that Satan cannot wreck it. He can't wreck it. Even in his attempts to wreck it, all he does is set it off the way that it's supposed to function. It's a very good creation. God deems it very good. And it leads to our second point here. God made specific plans to rest on the seventh day. God made specific plans to rest on the seventh day. He ceased work on the seventh day. Now this isn't a complete rest. This isn't a resting from weariness, right? So, so God's not tired. He's not, he's not exhausted from his creation, Psalm 121, Psalm 121, verse 4. We'll start with verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you, will keep your going out and your coming in for this time forth and forevermore. The Lord doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. God doesn't get tired. Isaiah forty twenty eight. Isaiah 40:28 says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What we find here is God is, is intentionally resting, but it's not because he's weary. It's also not a complete absence here. It's not that, that God says, okay, it's, it's my day off, it's my time to rest, so I'm going to completely check out from all of my responsibilities, right? God is still sustaining creation in the midst of his rest. 
So as we start to, we're going to start talking about principles that come from this, because if God's not resting from weariness, then he's obviously resting for some other purpose. And I believe he's, he's, he's giving us a pattern for what our week is supposed to look like. So while he does not grow weary, while he does not need to rest, we do grow weary and we do need to rest. And so God is setting for us an example, a pattern of what the work week is supposed to look like for us, I believe. And, and so he's, he's, he's willingly stepping back. And it's not that he's sleeping and, and tired. He's just stopping his work. He's ceasing his creative work. There's no creation that happens on day seven. No creation happens on day seven. He stops working. His intentional plans allowed for intentional rest. And that's, that's going to drive us as we continue to look at this over the next couple of weeks. He intentionally plans his week so that he can intentionally rest. He intentionally plans his week so that he can intentionally rest. And in the, in the context of God, what we mean by rest is stop working. Not only do we see God finishing his work and being done with his work and resting, he also declares the seventh day holy. It says in verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What does it mean that the seventh day was holy? This is the first reference in scripture to the concept of holiness, right? So we see, we see the term and the word holy developed as we get into God's word, but Starting from the very beginning, this is the first reference to holiness, and it's not attributed to God, right? It's attributed to a day. It's attributed to the seventh day. God calls it holy. Now, what he means by that, what he's doing there is he's declaring it to be distinctly different than the other days. It's set apart. It's different. It has a different purpose to it. It's, it's set apart from the other. There's, there, was, there was quality and characteristics of the first six days that aren't carried over to the seventh day. The big difference being one or, or one is without work. The other six contain work. God declares it holy. He separates it. He makes it different. His lack of work made it holy. It made it different. It became a day of refreshment and celebration for the work that was accomplished. By planning, celebration was able to occur. That's what we see here. God has, has so sovereignly overseen the week he's planned to work for six days and he leaves the seventh day as a day of enjoyment a day of enjoying and relishing in what he has accomplished in those six days so you don't see a god who's trying to to cram and finish up stuff on the seventh day right he's not overworking himself on the seventh day to get things done he's intently laid out his week to finish what he set out at the beginning of the week to do which now allows for a time of refreshment, a time of celebration, a time where he can look back and say, that was a very good week, a very good, I can celebrate what was accomplished. Looking back, I can see the good, the very good that was done in the past six days. And I can, I can rest, I can rest in knowing that what needed to be accomplished was accomplished. Implication for us. Am I planning to finish or am I planning to stay busy? 
Am I planning to finish or am I planning to stay busy? Think about the way your week is laid out. For most of us, now I know some people's work schedules are are different, and so what we understand as a weekend is not their weekend. But, But when you think in terms of the week being over, seven days being over, as you come to the end of your work week, is it characterized by joy, delight, celebration, and rest? Are those things that is there is that is that a characteristic of how you see that last day of the week? Is it a time of reflecting back on the things that have been accomplished and celebrating what God has done in and through you? Is there intentional planning that allows intentional rest? And see, this is something that I battle because for most of us, we intentionally plan to stay busy. That's how we plan it. We plan it essentially to not have rest. As we begin to lay out our week, especially those that have the weekend, it's, hey, we don't have anything going on this weekend. Let's fill it. Let's see how we can stay busy. And so we're not intentional to plan to rest. We're intentional to plan to stay busy. And we fill our week in a way that is not consistent with what we see God's week being, am I intentional to plan to finish or am I planning to stay busy? Number two, man's need for rest. Man's need for rest. Now what we're going to see, what we're going to see is a lot of what I'm going to have to call suggested principles that flow out of this, right? Because what we're about to see here is that there's no mandated guidelines, especially here in the New Testament, for there to be any single day that's supposed to be uh, especially done in a certain way. Right? So there was, under the old covenant, under the old system where Israel was a nation, there were specific guidelines about how the Sabbath was to function. And we're going to see some of those here in a second. Right? But we live in a society now where, where God's people are spread out all over the place. Right. And so um, and part of the reason that the old covenant, new covenant are so different is the fact that we're not a nation. And so we can't structure laws and and things and operate like a nation because we're not right. In the Old Testament, children were were killed for rebellion. Right. You stoned them for certain points of rebellion. We we can't do that now. Right. Like we don't have a system of of governmental laws that Christians can abide by. We live in other Countries We live in other government structures. So part of the reason the Old Covenant and New Covenant are so different is that we're not a nation. We're, we're a people that, that are spread out over all kinds of nations. And part of the reason that the Sabbath can't be uh, held to in the same way is because of how uh, different our culture is and how different our structures are. But what we find is a lot of principles that I believe, while they're not mandated, probably should be adapted into our life. Uh, they're, they're good things that should probably be done because they make sense. Not because they're a rule or a command, but because they're a good gift from a good God. Man's need for rest. Some of the dangers of work that we see in Scripture are laziness and then the other extreme being overworking. Right? So um, Paul addresses in, in First and Second Thessalonians the, the, the guilt of, of laziness. That if a man's not willing to work, then he shouldn't eat. Um, 
that we're called to do things. We're called to accomplish things. For most of us in our church, that's not a problem, right? Like we don't have to beat that too hard that that you shouldn't be lazy, that you should be working. Most of us have one job. A lot of us have multiple jobs, right? So the laziness sin is not too common within our church. But it may be that the overworking extreme is. And so I believe that that this is a good opportunity for us to to kind of refocus and, and recalibrate where we're at as God's creation and whether we've adapted some of these principles like we should. So man's need for rest. Creation week becomes the pattern of work, labor, and rest for mankind. Now this specifically applies to God's people. But what we see is that in our culture, this is how most people understand the work week, right? We get a section that we're supposed to work, and then we get a section where we're supposed to be able to enjoy it and do whatever we want to do. And because of the um, because of the Old Testament Sabbath and the New Testament, we meet on the first day of the week to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. It's uh, in a good way contributed to us to having a two day weekend versus a one day weekend, right? Like God's creative week was six days of work and one day off. In our culture, most of us experience a five day work week and two days off. Why is that? Because we, especially when we first started out, there was a, a Jewish presence that would have wanted the Sabbath off, that there was a, a, a necessary requesting off for that. And then you have Christians that want uh, Sunday off so they can worship because we worship on the first day of the week. And so to kind of equalize that, we have five days and two days off. Um, but it's the normal pattern of work that we see, and God expresses that in Exodus chapter 20. This is, again, kind of pointing back to why we see these days as literal days, because God seems to use them as literal days on Mount Sinai when he gives the commandments. In verse 9 of Exodus 20, six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Some of the the Sabbath restrictions um, that were, well, I mean, we'll get into this. Let me first emphasize as we get into this that the Sabbath restrictions are not placed on new covenant believers, right? So I don't want you to leave thinking that in any way we're imposing a mandatory Sabbath on anybody here, right? Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, we weren't here that long ago, but in talking about weaker brother, stronger brother, uh, people with different opinions about um, gray areas that we might would call them in Scripture, in Romans 14, 5 and 6, it says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So there's, there's, there's freedom there to kind of work some of this stuff out. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a great passage that lends itself to us feeling free, that there's no Sabbath restrictions placed upon the believer in the New Testament. Galatians 4 Verses 1 through 11 uh, highlights the fact that we've been set free from the law, that we've been rescued from the law. Talks about um, 
how we're no longer longer under it. In verse 8 of Galatians 4, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, so... A lot of evidence there in the New Testament that we're not restricted in any way, that we don't have mandated guidelines for how either Saturday or Sunday should look for us. Okay? So that's important to note as we get into this. Two questions, though, in your notes there. Question number one, why do we overwork? Why do we overwork? And question two, why did God give us a day of rest? Question number one, why did we, why do we overwork? And question number two is, why did God give us a day of rest. Why do you think, let's answer that t- together. Why, what are some reasons that, that people tend to overwork? All right, money. The more we work, the more we make, and the more that we can purchase and have for ourselves. Okay, some people just really enjoy it, right? And, and there should be enjoyment to work. We were created with responsibilities and tasks. And so um, I think it's important as much as you can to, to really set out when you're at an age where you can to pursue jobs that you feel like you're going to enjoy and like. Um, n- none of us should, should feel like we're supposed to be miserable in our jobs. Now, God places us at times where circumstances lead to that, and it's not necessarily a license to just leave because you're not happy. But I believe that we should, as we begin to pursue careers, that we should look for things that, that we're gifted in and, and that we have desires for. I think God wants us to enjoy creation and wants us to enjoy working in creation. Other reasons that somebody might be overworked or, or desire to overwork. Ambition. Okay, some people find identity in their work. The more they work, the more important they feel. Okay. Okay, demands by the boss. Okay, maybe it becomes a distraction. They can escape in their work, their life. For some, it's based on job security, right? The, the more I work, the more secure I feel in my job. And there's some truth to that, and there's some necessity to that, right? We live in a competitive society where if you're not pulling your weight, there's a line of people behind you ready to do it, right? And so I encourage, um, especially in the context of our Christian school, uh, where you could experience budget cuts very quickly if the clientele quits coming, that you should work in such a way where it's hard to fire you. Now, that's not a, a, a command to overwork yourself, but it is a, a necessity. We should be valuable to our, our employer, I mean, we should work in such a way where we are valuable to our employer. But uh, job security is, is a means of, of why some people are overworked. Um, for many of us, we're, we're in a situation where it, 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 one job doesn't get the job done, right? Um, it necessitates having uh, multiple jobs. Just in your mind, thinking through it, raise your hand if you feel like you've got uh, at least more, you have more going on in your life that would classify as you having more than one job. Right, like I have more than one job. Okay, 
when you have more than one job, there are demands placed upon you by both employers, and they don't always care about what the other employer is demanding of you, right? Like, when you have two jobs, both hired you to accomplish something, and they expect you to accomplish it, irrelevant to what your other employer is asking of you, right? Like, when I got hired on at Trinity, the understanding was, oh, I'm a a pastor, I'm I'm a senior pastor, and it was very clearly told to me, you have a job to do here. And if your other job affects it, then you won't be allowed to work here. So the, the, the responsibility was placed on me. If you're going to do two, two jobs, you've got to figure out how to do both jobs. Because we're not going to work with you to necessarily help you accomplish your other job. So I don't go into my job and expect them to give me additional time off so that I can be a pastor. They hired me to do a job, and I'm supposed to do it. So demands from multiple jobs a lot of times causes us to be overworked. Another key component to why we're overworked is technology, right? Technology is supposed to lessen our work, but really what it's done is it's allowed us to bring our work home. It's allowed us to bring our work to the weekend. And so many of us are overworked. Technology has not served that purpose. In fact, it's caused us to become overworked because we now have the ability to work from wherever we are. Most of it, in times past, you had to go to a location to accomplish your job. A lot of my job can be done anywhere. My employer doesn't see that way. I could do my job from bed, right? But I can't stay in bed. But, but technology has afforded us to be able to work constantly to where it doesn't necessarily cut itself off, right? We, we can do work from just about anywhere where we are. Those are some contributing factors to why we overwork. Question number two, why did God give a day of rest? For moms. Here's, here's what's troubling is that when we, we, have to preface, we have to preface this whole discussion with this isn't mandated, this isn't a law, this isn't a command, as though the Sabbath was a bad thing. It's as though we want to say, can we get out from underneath that? Can we, can we not have to observe the Sabbath in the New Testament as though God gave it as an evil thing? But when you look at it and you even look at some of the, the uh, things that were prohibited on the Sabbath, it was given as a good gift. It was given as a good gift. Now, the Pharisees abused it. And when Jesus finally shows up on the scene, it really is a burden. Like people probably looked forward to not the sabbath day like the other six were better than the sabbath day because you were so stressed out that you were going to do something wrong on the sabbath day but when the sabbath was originally given in the original context it was a very good thing and even the things that were prohibited were designed for good right like some of the things that you couldn't do you weren't supposed to cook on the sabbath day now for for those of us that don't cook we're thinking why is that such a big deal but for whoever, this could be man or woman, but whoever's the primary uh, cooker in your um, in your household, a day off is not a day where they have to cook, where they're responsible for providing meals. That oftentimes doesn't lend itself to a restful day, especially if they take pr- great pride in their presentation of meals. Right? Like it's not a day off for somebody who is responsible for cooking. And so God builds it into the Sabbath where He says. I'm going to give you, when they were, when they were um, traveling, he said, I'm going to give you double the manna so that you have food already in place for the next day. You can go ahead and cook it and prepare it and have it ready so that everybody in the household can rest. 
Because cooking is not typically a restful event. It's not a restful experience. That's why a lot of moms have something in the crock pot that was put in last night so that today can be more of a day of rest. It's why Lauren and I go out to eat every Sunday because it's not restful for her to have to go home and cook our lunch. Right. So so part of why I kind of budget for us to go out to eat is because I don't I want it to be a restful experience for her. I don't want her to have to stress about what we're eating on Sunday, because for her, this is as much of a restful day as she's going to get. Uh, You were supposed to stay at home on the Sabbath day. you weren't supposed to leave your place of dwelling. Most of us would agree that being at home is more restful than being at somebody else's house. Right, like you've all experienced that where where you've had a stressful week and somebody says, "Hey, you want to hang out?" I think I'm just going to stay at home today. I'm just going to stay at home today. Like I enjoy going over to Adam and Jen's house and watching football. It's more restful for me to be at home watching football on my TV. Why? Because I don't have to stress about AJ breaking something at their house or or wandering off and doing something at, at their house that he's not familiar with. I can rest and relax differently at my house than I can anywhere else, really. And that was part of what God prescribed to the children of Israel. Stay at home. Don't cook. Rest. Rest. You worked for six days. Enjoy this day off. And so it's sad that we say, do we have to abide by that? Do we have to, can, we, can we get out from underneath that? Because it, it, what, it, what it does is it, we're probably reverting back to the Sabbath in, in the Pharisee definition. You, you couldn't do any. I mean, anything was considered work, and you were guilty, and so... You woke up and basically stressed, I need to make sure I don't do anything today that would violate God. And, and, and they had built up all these other restrictions that God had never given. God gave good, uh, he, he prohibited good things from them to enforce rest upon them. It was given to perfect, uh, it was, sorry, it was given to protect us from feelings of guilt. I believe the Sabbath was given to us to protect us from feeling guilty, Right? Most of us love the idea of resting. Most of us love the idea of going home on a Sunday and taking a nap. A lot of us feel guilty if we do. Think about it. Every time that you have the opportunity to rest, a lot of us feel guilty if we take advantage of that opportunity. We lay on the couch and we say, I'm going to take a nap. And and we can't even fall asleep because we're thinking, I should be doing this, I should be doing this, I should be doing this, I should be doing this. And we end up getting up, we didn't rest, and we didn't get anything done either. We felt guilty the whole time we were trying to rest. I believe the Sabbath was given to protect us from feeling guilty. It was given as a provision. It was given so that we would rest and know that God wanted us to rest. That if we intentionally plan our week to where we intentionally plan to rest, We don't have to feel guilty about it. We can enjoy it. We can relish in it. We can feel like we've accomplished what we're supposed to. And we've, in a sense, earned the right to rest. Because we've done something very good for six days. And now I can enjoy the seventh day the way I'm supposed to. I can enjoy it. I can rest. I can be refreshed as I get geared up for another six days of work. It's a necessary thing, I believe. Right? And we're going to talk about some of the benefits of rest here in just a second. Uh, It was given to protect feelings of guilt. We said the Pharisees made it a day of burden. What we see is that Jesus did good works on the Sabbath, right? Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. He talked about the good works that were good to be done on the Sabbath. Um, and so Jesus reinterprets the Sabbath back to the way it should have been understood all along. And I want to give you a little caution here. Well, I can't tell you that it's mandated. I will caution you that what we see in the Old Testament 
is that God may force you to rest if you don't willingly rest. God may force you to rest if you're not willing to rest. What, what's the, what's the, in Leviticus 26, God tells Israel, if you don't honor my Sabbaths, if you don't rest, I will kick you out of the land so that the land will rest. If you won't choose to do it, I'll make it happen. Right? And I think that that, that kind of carries over into the New Testament. For those that, that, that continue to push themselves, continue to work, continue to work, don't rest, don't take care of themselves, oftentimes they find themselves getting sick, right? They find themselves breaking down. Their bodies can't keep up with that pace. They can't keep going. Their production potentially suffers, and they may be without a job. I caution you that, that, if, that if we're not faithful to rest, it's very possible that God will force us to rest. That our bodies can't keep up with a seven-day pace. God never intended for it to be that way. And our bodies don't respond to it. Sickness can set in. Production drops. And it can be very dangerous and very long-term damaging in the sense that if production drops, the continued job may not continue. The need for physical rest and the need for spiritual rest. We'll close with these two items. The need for physical rest... The need for spiritual rest. Why is a goal of rest good? Why is a goal of rest good? I'm going to give you four reasons. Why is a goal of rest good? Now, we're, we're jumping to, we're, we're, we jumped out of day six to day seven to talk about the day of rest. Next week, we're going to go back and look more at what we're supposed to do during the first six days. But I wanted to go ahead and get to day seven because I want you to understand that in discussing what we're supposed to do during those six days, the, the multiplying, the subduing, the, the work that's been given to man, that we have to understand it in the context of the goal is to have a day of rest. So I want to go ahead and give you the importance of structuring those six days to rest before we really talk about what to do in those six days. Okay, so um, the importance of rest. Why is a goal of rest good? Number one, it reminds us of our limitations. A day of rest is good because it reminds us of our limitations. It reminds us that we are the creature and not the creator. You wouldn't think that we would have to be reminded of that. It should be obvious. But even the Bible feels necessary, feels that it's necessary to remind us. In Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. God made us. We belong to them, to him. Uh, the goal of rest is good because it reminds us of our limitations. It reminds us that we can't do everything that we want to do. We can't do everything that we want to do. There, there, in order to, to plan to rest, it necessitates you planning to say no to some things. Right, like I had to, and I'm still not sure I made all the best decisions. I had to turn down a a trip last night to Fogo de Chao in Atlanta, which is um, like this really expensive restaurant. I mean, I, I cringe even telling you that I didn't go when I had an offer to go. the The offer was we're paying for it, and there was also a potential offer of riding in a limousine to it. Right, so um, intentionally planning to rest implies that there is times where you're going to have to say no to things, right? 
We have to say no to things. And, and we'll get in here to our priorities in a minute. But but based on how I had to prioritize yesterday, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to spend time in God's word. I knew that I wanted to spend time serving my church family by being here for a cleaning day. I knew I needed time to simply rest as an individual, time for my family. And when, when I began to prioritize, it didn't leave room for Fogo Day Chow, right? Like I, we, we had a great night out in Atlanta on Friday night with some friends, and we went and ate at a, at, at a Chow Baby, which is maybe a slimmed-down version of a Fogo Day Chow, but still very good in itself. I couldn't do both. Couldn't fit everything in because I was intentionally planning time to rest. Intentionally planning time to have downtime, rest time. So a goal of rest is good because it reminds us of our limitations. It reminds us that we can't do everything. We can't do everything. But what's important to remember is that God has given us the time to do everything we need to do. God has given us the time to do everything that we need to do. Dan and I were talking about this uh, not too long ago. We talked about the fact that God has ordained 24 hours in a day. He ordained the sun to come up and the sun to go down. He, he ordained the length of time that we can stay awake and really be effective. God has ordained the amount of time in a day that we can accomplish things, and he certainly never gives us more than we can accomplish during that time. Now, sin and negligence and, and laziness can factor into us not having enough time to accomplish what he gives us. But at the core, at the core God gives us enough time to accomplish what he needs us to do. Not enough time to accomplish everything that we want to do, but does give us the time to accomplish what we need to do. So number one, it reminds us of our limitations. Number two, it allows for maximum production. It allows for maximum production. Our work begins to suffer when we are not resting well. A goal of rest is good because it allows for maximum production. There's times when, when I'm working on something, it may be school-related, it may be coaching-related, it may be sermon-related. There's times when it comes in the, in the evening where I say, we're done here. We are done here. I can continue to try to do something, but it is not producing what it needs to do. Like, I'm not producing good work right now. And so I might as well just stop, rest, and pick it up tomorrow because my brain's starting to shut down. And I could continue to stay there and continue to stare at the computer, continue to stare at a book. But there comes a point where my production really begins to suffer. And moving forward, it's not really of any benefit. It's the same for a week as well. But when we, when we build in times of rest, it allows for maximum production. Number three, it keeps us focused on heavenly things. Number three, it keeps us focused on heavenly things. It protects us from becoming consumed with this earth. Several people mentioned it, the, the, the demand for money, identity, some of the things that we find in our work. When we stop and pause and impose upon ourselves a day of rest, it protects us and keeps us focused on heavenly things. It reminds us that our hope is in the Lord, not in our labor. And this is something that you have to preach to yourself because it feels right to work hard and to not stop. Right. It seems like a positive character trait. Hey, when everybody else is stopping and resting, I keep going. Right. Like I'm the energizer bunny. I don't stop. I'm here before everybody else gets here. I stay. I'm staying later than anybody else. It feels good. It feels right. It feels responsible. It feels like you're the one that can be counted upon. And it builds almost a godlike mentality within us. 
And we begin to work longer than God worked during the creative week. It keeps us heavenly focused that our hope is in the Lord, not in our labor. And then fourthly, it allows us time to reflect and correct. It allows us time to reflect and correct. It's a built-in pause button. We have the opportunity to reset for the coming week, to regain God's perspective. For some of us, our weeks blur together so much that we don't ever stop to say, was that very good? Right? Like most of us, our weeks blur together so much that a month is gone and we haven't evaluated whether the last six days were of any good. What we see here is that God stops, he pauses, and says, the last six days were very good. Like, we don't expect God to have to correct anything. For us, we do. Our day of rest becomes a chance for us to look back and say, eh, that was so-so. That was so-so. I, can, I, I, need to, I need to change some things. I need to restructure some things so that this next six days is better. So that I can look back and say, very good. It necessitates a pause button where we reset and we refocus. Am I, am I giving appropriate time to my family? Am I giving appropriate time to my church family? Am I giving appropriate time to spiritual disciplines? It allows a time for you to stop and say, let me think back about the six days that just took place. Now, if I'm busy and working on that seventh day, I can't stop and think about that. Right? Saturday could still be a different kind of day, or Sunday could be a different kind of day than the other six. But if I'm so consumed and busy... It still doesn't allow me a chance to reflect and, and, and recalibrate. And it feels wrong to stop and pause. We feel guilty for it. And yet what we find is, is that God mandated it. He mandated it upon a group of people that didn't have the law written on their hearts. It's not mandated in the New Testament. But it's something that should probably be adapted in the New Testament. That it's a good gift. It's a good thing. It's not something that we should necessarily try to be released from. Secondly, though, there's a bigger need for spiritual rest. The need for spiritual rest. Augustine says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We can structure the best six days with the most restful seventh day possible and still have no rest and have no peace. Ultimately, there's spiritual rest that's needed, and the Sabbath was pointing to a greater rest in the future through Christ. Look what Matthew 11, verse 28 says. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me all who are uh, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus tells us to come to him to find rest. How can he do that? Because John seventeen four. Jesus praying to his father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work. That you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There is a lot of similarity in God, the Trinity, completing the work of creation. And God, the Trinity, completing redemption. 
Jesus says, I'm surveying my work the past 33 years. I'm surveying it. And Father, I have finished the work that you've given me. What does he proclaim on the cross? It is finished. I have completed what needed to be done. I'm done. God the Father says that he is, he is pleased with his son. He is pleased with the work that's been accomplished. It's very similar to what we see happening in Genesis chapter 2 when God looks back and says, it's done, it's very good, it is finished. We rest now. Jesus says, you come to me to rest because I have accomplished the spiritual work that you needed to do to be saved. The, the perfection, the obedience to God's law, the, the covenant of works understanding. Jesus says, I have fulfilled it. I have accomplished it perfectly. You don't work your way to my Father. You don't work for God's approval now. It has been accomplished. It has been earned. It has been satisfied by the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reminds us of the role of good works in our life. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The implication there is that our good works come after our salvation. We don't work for salvation. We don't work and then rest like in the Old Testament, right? That was the pattern in the Old Testament. Work, 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 Sabbath. It's flipped in the New Testament, right? You rest in Christ and then the good works flow from that rest. When we're secure in our understanding that the gospel rests in Jesus' work, his atoning work, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, it enables us now to work moving forward, that we perform good works as it flows out of that grace that's been given to us. The spiritual rest is just as important, far more important than the physical rest. Application for us, and this will help drive us for the next week. How do I learn to rest? How do I learn to rest? Number one, develop a priority plan. Develop a priority plan. I'm going to give you a definition of productivity, and we're going to come back to this next week. Productivity, right? Like that's what it takes to look back on your six days and say, very good. Productivity. It's effectively stewarding, effectively stewarding your gifts, talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm. It's effectively stewarding your gifts, talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm. This is the definition by Tim Challies, by the way. Effectively stewarding your gifts, talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm for the good of others and the glory of God. Develop a priority plan so that you can be productive. Effectively stewarding your gifts, talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm for the good of others and the glory of God. All right, so we started our discussion today off with this. And this is, this is how it works for me. Okay, and so we're going to we're going to explore some alternate ways of organization and how to prioritize because 
everybody probably functions a little bit differently and thinks a little bit differently. And so organizational skills can, can take on a lot of different perspectives. But for me, this is how, this is how I organize and plan my week and intentionally seek to plan rest into my week. Okay. So I start with who I am. These are my responsibilities during the week. Because of the roles that I have, I have responsibilities that flow from these. Some of them are earthly and some of them are heavenly. Okay. Earthly, um, in the sense of, doesn't, doesn't mean that there's no heavenly aspects to it, but I have responsibilities as a husband, a father, a principal, a coach, and then things that I enjoy. Those are earthly things. Those are earthly tasks and responsibilities. God has given me a earthly family to take care of, earthly children to take care of. There are heavenly things that I'm responsible for as far as being a Christian and being a pastor. And I want to make sure that I maintain balance with that. So I've got more roles as an, as a, as that, that pertain to earthly tasks. But like I said, some of them are intertwined with heavenly responsibilities as well. But it starts with me determining who I am so that I can um, accurately make sure that I'm doing these things well. So that when I reflect back at the end of the week, I have to reflect back and say, did I fulfill my responsibilities as a Christian this week? Did I, did I do very good as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a coach, a pastor, a principal, sportsman? And then I have to prioritize my week as well. And I'm going to give you what this looks like for me. Okay, obviously... God takes precedent in my life or should take precedent. So I'm going to list it as number one. It's not always true. Um, that's what that's what I desire for my life. Okay. Um, immediate family is going to be number two for me. Right. Like God has given me a wife and children that I'm supposed to love, serve and take care of faithfully. Now, a lot of times. That means work becomes number three, two, a. Because my work is tied to the care of my immediate family. Okay, so I'm not trying to to diminish some of this other stuff, but my work necessarily factors into my care for my immediate family. So it takes great priority in my life, right? Um, my church family is more important than my extended family. I'm just going to be honest with you about that. Okay, I love you guys more. I'd rather be with you guys more than anybody else outside of my family. My extended family does not take priority in my life anymore. I love my extended family. I love getting together with my extended family. But if it comes down between a choice between you guys and my extended family, I'm going to choose you every time. Every time. Because there's something supernatural that's happened when I joined this church to be a part of you guys. Now, I'm not mandating or imposing that that has to be the case for you. I'm just sharing with you my heart on this. It's why rarely, rarely does something take priority over anything going on with this church. I don't miss stuff. And I'm just telling you honestly why I don't. Because there's very little that that jumps ahead of you guys. Right? Because my immediate family... It's included with my church family because my immediate family is a part of this church family, right? So they're, they're, they're one and the same a lot of times. Very rarely does anything take precedent over you guys. I've joined myself to you guys. I love you guys. I will sacrifice for you guys. I will give everything that I have for you guys. I love my extended family. I love them. And this is where it starts to get... Kind of blurred. This one, obviously, last night was last. I didn't go to Fogo Day Chow. Um, honestly, 
myself takes precedent over my extended family if we're talking about rest, right? Like I'm going to choose rest over my extended family if I haven't already built it into my schedule somewhere else. I'm just being honest with you. I'm not mandating any of this. These These are principles, but I'm just telling you, the love for our church family has got to be high priority if we're going to function the way that the book of Acts talks about the church functioning, where people desired, craved to be a part of what they saw in the local churches. It's got to be a big priority. It's got to be a big priority. And it causes us to reflect and say, what would take priority over our church family? Develop a, a priority plan. Number two, develop a weekly plan. So you've got to kind of think through your responsibilities, who you are, what do you have to get done during a week, what are your priorities, and then you've got to lay out a weekly plan. You've got to lay out a weekly plan, and I do this as well. Like, I'm already thinking about what next weekend looks like. I have to do this because if I'm not careful, I'll intentionally fill it up and stay busy. I have to build in time to rest. I have to build in time to rest. Which is, um, which is why most of the time if you guys ask me to do something on a Sunday after church, it's just not going to happen. It's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't want to. It's because I've probably already prioritized you as my church family earlier in the week, and it's got to be my time of rest. So on Sunday afternoons, more often than not, I want to be at home. I want to be resting with my family because I need it. I need that time of rest. Obviously, there's, there's times where it's different. Today, we're going to be gone, right? We're going to be at the, the fall fellowship. And so I had to build in restful time um, that, that won't take place today. And so that was why I didn't go last night. Like I needed a time of rest on a Saturday night when normally it would be a Sunday night. Um, I had to restructure my weekend to accommodate for that. Develop a weekly plan. If you're going to get to the end of a week and say, very good, it starts at the beginning of the week, right? God's creative week started with planning at the beginning. He intentionally planned. He intentionally laid out six days of planning, got to the end and rested, and it was very good. And he didn't just end up there by accident, right? We talked about what did God create every day. He knew what he was going to create every day. He planned it. He planned it. He created it. Got to the end of the week. I'm done. I'm resting. It's very good. And then number three, plan to rest. Plan to rest. Our weekend should be a celebration of the work that we have done through Christ and the work that Christ has done in us. Our weekend should be a celebration of the work that we have done through Christ and the work Christ has done in us. And the, and the great thing about this is that there's freedom in how you rest, right? There, was, there were things that were prohibited when God mandated rest, but not a whole lot of things that were prescribed that had to be done, right? Think about it. When we have mandated rest, you get days off from work, maybe Memorial Day, maybe Christmas Day, maybe Labor Day. These are days, more specifically Memorial Day and Labor Day, because there's more, most of us have things that we have to do on Christmas Day and other days. When you find out that you have a day off mandated, what's the one question that gets asked a lot of times? Hey, what are you doing on Memorial Day? What are you doing on Labor Day, right? We know it's a day of rest, How are you choosing to spend your day of rest? And that's the freedom that comes in this, is that we're to pursue rest. We need rest. But what is restful is going to look different for us. And there's freedom in doing that. And and one of the guys that I was reading said that, you know, because we're privileged to have a lot of us two days of rest or two-day weekends, that Saturdays uh, oftentimes can become a day of enjoying creation. 
enjoying the God who's created, and then Sundays become a day of enjoying our Savior, enjoying two aspects of who God is. God is creator, God is Savior, right? Saturdays a lot of times become a great day for outdoor activities and family activities that cause us and force us to be outside and in creation. Sundays are a lot more times focused on on God as Savior and enjoying our time as church family. And there can be rest in both of those experiences. And if you're like me, a lot of times you have to separate your days. And so I get some restful time on Saturdays and some restful time on Sundays. I haven't figured out how to have an entire day of rest yet. Um, And that's something that I would love to get to and love to work towards. Um, Haven't figured that out yet. Um, But we're going to continue to talk about this moving forward um, learning to rest, learning to work properly, and, and kind of balancing that. But I want to close this morning, as we've been doing, by reading a passage of Scripture. I just think it's appropriate in, in, in how we've, we've learned to, to see the God of creation and then reflect on different authors of Scripture that praise God for that creation. But I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, to whom, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since, the, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as much as we desire physical rest, you have made this spiritual rest available to us that's described here in Hebrews 4. Father, we're thankful that we can stop. We can stop our works and attempts to be approved by you. And we can rest in the knowledge that Jesus Christ has accomplished everything on our behalf. And so, God, I pray that we would spiritually rest as a church family. That we would serve faithfully out of a love for you. And not feelings of needing to appease you. 
God, I pray that we would see the things you've called us to do are good things. Things for our benefit. Father, I pray for the physical rest of our church family. God, I know that we cannot be productive like we need to be. We cannot serve as a church. We cannot grow to 150 people. We can't start a local ministry. We can't plant other churches if we're not willing to intentionally plan to rest. God, I know that our church will die out before that can happen. Father, I know that it's going to take us intentionally planning to use our days for your glory, for your honor, to use them with very good purposes. It's going to take us prioritizing and planning and not just taking each day one day at a time. That we're going to have to plan our weeks to accomplish the many things that you've given us to do. But Father, the hope is that you have given us the opportunity to rest when we intentionally plan when we intentionally take responsibility for the task that you've given us. And Lord, I know that many of us bear many responsibilities and hats in this room. But Father, we're trusting that you never give us more than we can do. And so Father, I'm praying that you would instill in us the desire to plan. Plan to be effective so that we can also plan to rest. God, I pray that you give us wisdom and insight in the coming weeks to know how to do that personally so that we're being effective for you and we're resting so that we can continue that effectiveness long term. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.